Hi, Mage fans. This is your host, Terry Robinson, with Mage the Podcast. And my guest today from the Dark Ages podcast on all things World of Darkness in the Dark Dark Ages of the Dark Dark Ages <laughs> is Jacob K. joining us again. Jacob, how are you doing? I am doing great. Thank you so much for having me back. It's uh, always nice to uh, talk about one of my, my great passions, the, the Dark Dark Ages. Um, somewhere else than my other podcast. <laughs> the Dark Shadows of the Shadow Dark. And <laughs> and you are several time zones from me, so I think it is, it is one thirty my time, and I think it's two and a half days from now, around midnight for you, if I understand the time zones <laughs> correctly. I think it's Thursday where you are, so uh, I appreciate you time traveling back. Yeah, to, to yeah, I, I have no idea how much paradox this is going yeah. <laughs> to uh, I'm, I'm willing to do it for you. That Yeah, that's what the executive producers are for. They provide us the quintessence <laughs> we need to deal with the paradox generated by this. So uh, tell us a little about your podcast. It's been, I guess, a little over a year or almost two years since we last spake, and I was like, have you gotten a mage yet? You're like, we will in six months. So what have you covered, <laughs> and what do you still have ahead of you? So we are getting very close to the end of the second edition, the one that was Dark Ages and then Vampire, Werewolf, Mage, and so on. And we are going to be recording fairly soon from when we're recording this. We're going to take a look at the Dark Ages Book, which was sort of an odd one out because when they outlined the original Dark Ages line, they were going to have Dark Ages Vampire, Werewolf, Mage, and Inquisitor. And then a lot of stuff happened and Dark Ages Fade just got put in there. And without spoiling it too much, I'll say that this is a book that I'm very, 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 very glad to be reviewing because it's one that I think is very overlooked. It is a hidden gem. So once we've done that, we're, we're almost finished. And then we move on to the 20th anniversary edition of Dark Ages, which is going to be quite the mammoth task. I, I took a look at the core book, which we're currently using for our game of transylvania chronicles and that is a beast like that could stop a bullet yeah the m20 books have they're all big so <laughs> we, we we had done the same thing as you where we read a book every two weeks and we're like no i'm not going to be able to get through a 250 page book in two weeks for four months in a row so i noticed you've also included all of the other game lines all dark ages thing and we are talking about the world of dark ages podcast more information at woedarkages.squarespace.com link will be in the show notes as well as to the podcast itself you've also covered dark ages inquisitor i know nothing about dark ages inquisitor what is that so it's their take on hunter the reckoning in the dark ages for better or for worse it's a no-brainer because in especially Vampire, you have always had the talk of the Shadow Inquisition that was started not to pursue heretics as the Papal Inquisition was, but to pursue the servants of the devil, mainly among them vampires. And here you have the rules for playing these Inquisitors. And it's quite divisive because it uses a lot of the Hunter of the Reckoning mechanics where you have a resource that you gamble on your roles. So if you succeed on using some of your, in this case, God-given powers, then you can gain it back. And I'm one of the ones who weren't a big fan of that. We just put out an episode on the Inquisitor's companion book, which really sort of, in my uh, opinion, did a lot of good for the game. It, it made me more interested in the game. I can see where they're coming from. I mean, people kind of like having a lot of powers to throw around rather than just having a true face faith stat. But at the same time, it, for me, it never really worked. But the, the whole organizational thing is interesting. They talk a lot about, well, how 
does this organization dedicated to eradicating the enemies of God exist? And there are a, a number of, of interesting things in, in it that you can take out and use anyway. And so it's not, it's not a complete loss, but it just went in a direction that I wasn't that interested in. But more like there's a greater feeling of this works than I got from Hunter the Reckoning. For Hunter the Reckoning, it was always for me like this feels a bit weird. Like all of a sudden people have supernatural powers and decide that they're going to go kill supernatural beings. And but they themselves are supernatural powers and stuff like that. Here it's quite clear you're on a mission from God. So, yeah. And, and looking through it, I had no concept of what, what it would be, but just kind of thumbing through, just seeing the monastic and the lay orders as potential antagonists, or even in a modern game to be like, Hey, I want to have a highly religious mage, but I don't want to take part in any of the established groups. Turns out I am an awakened mess- member of the sisters of St. John or the order of the, uh, the poor Knights of the passion of the cross of acre or something like that, or the house of Murnau or whatever. And you'd be like, yes, I am the scion of a Bavarian noble family or something like that, <laughs> which is something we all want to say in games, regardless of what continent we are on. Quite true. Quite true. Yeah. Oculi Dei is just a good name. I think it just feels good in the mouth. So Latin just adds something extra to, to things. I don't know what it is, but when, when things are in Latin, they're either more cool or more ominous or it just, there's something about Latin. I don't yeah. know what it is. Or more pretentious. It's really those three. <laughs> I tend to like Greek origins for words like Enchiridion. I just kind of like the prosody of it. And there was Steven Pinker was talking about how there's supposedly this grammar rule that says you shouldn't mix Greek and Latin rule, roots yeah. for a word. But we do that all the time, uh, automobile being the easiest example of that. And if, if we had stuck with that, we would either have the Ipsomobile or the Autokineticon. And I don't know about <laughs> you, but I would love to be like, mm, I need to pick up my Autokineticon from repair. It's, it really sounds like a transformer, like Ipsomobile, Autokineticon, come to the base immediately. And like, and, and they roll it, it, out. It, but it, yes. so- it sounds like, you know, you're casting a spell. I am moving somewhere. <laughs> I am casting Autokineticon. Yes, that is my pillar for my my Dark Ages vehicular <laughs> mage. So that's interesting. What does the companion add? Is it kind of like the Dark Ages mage grimoire where it's just like, more stuff? No, that's the great thing about it. Like, there is more stuff in the form of a few more powers and a few more merits and flaws, things like that. But mainly it delves into the organization that is behind getting this off the ground. And it's a great resource, even if you're not playing Dark Ages Inquisitor, if you want to include things from the Catholic Church, like it explains monasticism, the origins of monasticism, monastic rules. It goes into things that you may ne- never think about, like if you have a group of inquisitors consisting of four male and one female inquisitor, how's that going to look? Well, that's going to look like they're sinning. It just it gives you a, a lot of really good information that can be used to make the medieval world come alive if you are including pretty much anything related to the Catholic Church. And given the omnipresence of the Catholic Church in the, what shall we say, the default setting of Dark Ages, which is Christian Europe, it's always nice to know more about it. And the odds of you either having someone who is monastic or having to enter a monastery for some reason in a game is really, really big. We have this joke in the World of Dark Ages podcast that every Dark Ages vampire book has some mention of a vampire layering in a monastery. Part of our 
the reason our um, logo looks like it does is we wanted a monastery to be involved because it, because it had become a running joke. But monasteries had become by 1230 so omnipresent that if you're traveling, chances are that at some point you're just going to spend the night in a monastery because they're willing to take in wanderers. So it's just nice to have all of that information. And it also goes into more detail about the various orders. But that's almost secondary to me because the information about a very interesting aspect of the medieval world is just so well-researched and well-presented. So speaking of that medieval world, so we're talking about Europe in the 1230s. And this conversation, uh, in a previous one, we tried to touch on what was happening in the other continents at the time, but the game really is Eurocentric in that regard. If you're lucky, you can kind of extend it to to distant Araby, as it's (laughs) described in Dark Ages Mage. And one of my favorite asides is like, oh, by the way, in 1230, there wouldn't be any Mongols in Europe if you want to have a historically accurate game, to which my response is, in 1230, there weren't wizards in Europe. That is is quite true. That's that's me. (laughs) And the recurring theme in Dark Ages Mage is your real enemy is prejudice. (laughs) So what were the tiers of European life like at the time? So my presumption is the vast preponderance of the the, uh, population is like rural turd farmers or something like that. And then it kind of goes up from that. It's not quite the dung ages as some people like to call it. But yeah, like more than 90% of all people who have ever lived were farmers. At that point, yeah. 90 plus percent of everyone living is a farmer of some kind. But at this point, you have a lot of good farming going on. Like, there's always this idea that you have the downtrodden serfs who can barely feed themselves. But there's a lot of farmland. You have a lot of forest being cleared. And people might be thinking, okay, well, there we have uh, an obvious inn for the werewolves. But there's so much forest left. People don't really realize just how much land is not under the plow by this point. There's still a lot of land that can be cleared. So you have good weather. You have new farming techniques that have been developed over the last couple of hundred years. And things like, for example, the the wheeled plow, which allowed the fields of Northern Europe to be farmed much more effectively. You have the, the beginnings of international trade happening where obviously food is not the easiest thing to transport, but you still have salted herring, for example, being transported in vast amounts from the Baltic down to the south. There are a lot of people who are living hand-to-mouth, hard scrabble. There are a lot of people who are living in what we might consider very, very unfree conditions. But your general peasant living in a peasant village in Bavaria or England or whatever, they are not really that worried about their livelihood because they know that the land is going to provide like if if you want to see mortality rate, you at this point you should move to a city, because at this point, and for a couple of hundred years ahead of this, cities had a negative population growth. If you don't look at people moving into the cities, just because if you cram this many people together, even in cities that had old Roman sanitation, disease was just so rampant. You have a lot of people living these rural lives in villages and hamlets, small towns. Then you have a, a growing class of Burgers citizens, especially in places like obviously Italy, but also the low countries, Flanders, and the urban class is growing. Uh, you have the church class, what, what we can call clerical class or uh, stuff like that. Monasteries, as I've already talked about, people were flocking to those because you had recently had some reformations that meant that people were once again trusting monasteries 
not to be dens of iniquity. So there were a growing class there. So it was it was really a time where Europe especially was becoming crowded. It was almost getting overpopulated. Yeah, the it's kind of interesting. The if we look at specifically at the year twelve thirty, thereabouts, that's literally the population is one tenth of what it is now. So Europe mm. currently has something like seven hundred and thirty million people, depending on how you define Europe. In twelve, <laughs> yeah, in twelve hundred, the population was about sixty eight million. In twelve fifty, the population was about seventy three million. So more than ten x growth. It is almost impossible for me to think of like how sparsely populated. That is, if the United States had the population density of France, we would roughly have 1 billion Americans, where if we had the population density of Australia, I think we would have something like 70 million. So it would be something even sparser than that. So half the population density at the continent level, obviously. Yeah. Europe and America had fundamentally different development patterns. It was even if you were a sole farmer, you were still kind of in a town and you would walk to your field as opposed to in the U.S. Again, during the colonial era, it took 10 families in the 18th century in the U.S. It took 10 families to support an 11th family that was not a farmer in some way. And in the U.S., you would have your house in the middle of your plot as opposed to having all the houses kind of together. So even in sparsely populated areas, you still probably have something like neighbors or at least a fair number of people still have something like neighbors. People were crowded together and because they needed to be to help each other with the farming and for, for protection, it had, it had grown out of the time after the fall of Rome. But yeah, you're right. Population, there wasn't a lot of population density, but when people crowded together, they really crowded yeah. <laughs> together. So there was these vast swaths where there were just no people and then you'd come to a town and then several towns and then a huge city with something like between ten and 40,000 people was something that you could find at this point. And, and as you mentioned, the rooms of a house as we know it had barely been invented. So it wouldn't be uncommon <laughs> yeah. for multiple generations of a single house to be in a single common room. The, the first room we get after the kind of the master bedroom is the drawing room, which is short for the withdrawing room. The idea is you would have the hall, which was open to kind of everyone, and then you would have a private area for the family. But as you mentioned, yes, people are, are rare. But given that there is a person around, there's probably a bunch of people around. You make mention of... The fall of, of Rome, is that something that is in any way in people's minds? Like, is, is the glory of Rome still something behind? Because, like, to me, there's always that fight to be, yes, Rome has fallen, but we haven't quite had that pre-Renaissance that said, but they had a bunch of good ideas. So I don't know if in the time it was still kind of viewed as the fall of a decadent pagan civilization, or was there in Europe an idea that there was something glorious about it? Well, first of all, I, I should be... The fall um, of the Western Roman Empire. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes I get annoyed when people just say the fall of Rome because it is the Western Roman yes. Empire. Constantinople makes it literally <laughs> another thousand years. <laughs> yeah, with a few uh, ups and downs. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But yeah. The fall of the Western Roman Empire, when it fell, it was Christian. It was seen as the, the ordained ruler of Europe. So you have people like Charlemagne and later the his, his successors, the Holy Roman emperors taking on the mantle of Rome. Now, for your average peasant, they might have heard of Rome, but if they knew of Rome, it was that's where the Pope is. But as soon as you got someone who was either a noble or educated, Rome would be a big part. The idea was that the Roman Empire was, after it had become Christian, it was sort of 
God's ordained way of ruling Europe. You have Roman law was still the law that people looked to. Obviously, it changed over the centuries in various places, and there were places where it never reached. In Denmark, where I am, the law was based on the old Norse law during the Viking Age. But everywhere where Rome had been, laws were based first on Roman laws, and then possibly with some influence from local laws. So Rome was seen as sort of this shining beacon, and everyone who wanted legitimacy, they hearkened back to Rome, starting obviously with Charlemagne, who was the first crowned Holy Roman Emperor. It's not sort of the the, the fallen decadent. It's not something that your average person thinks about, but especially also for many of the supernatural I don't know if we should call them races or what we should call them, but the, the, uh, night folk lines, yeah, types. Yeah, the the people who have who have supernatural powers for them, Rome is often a big thing because it was this incredible centralized and technologically advanced civilization that shaped more than two thirds of Europe during its its heyday. So you make mention of Rome and the other and the other night folk. Kind of what are the other night folk up to? Like what is the status of things? We know that the Dark Ages Fey are kind of this different thing unto themselves. For Wraith, the breaking of the guilds hasn't happened. It's only in the wake of the first great maelstrom. The underworld is still actually pretty navigable, but just sad. <laughs> I I don't know much about werewolf and vampire. Kind of what is the world of what is Europe like for the Garou at this point? So for the werewolves, it's kind of interesting because it's something that I made a big deal of when we were doing the core book for Dark Ages Werewolf. I have trouble figuring out what the werewolves are actually up to at this point that makes for a good role-playing story because it's not the perfect land for the werewolf, but it's pretty damn close. You have huge tracts of wilderness. Pollution is almost exclusively within cities, even like uh, mining operations don't really pollute in any meaningful sense. So when you read the core book for Werewolf, basically what you get is, yeah, they're running around, patting themselves on the back, and then fighting over Cairns. So it's Werewolf against Werewolf, which seems a bit sad. And then they introduce in the core book these two ideas. You have the Flaying Plague, which is a supernatural disease that affects werewolves. And you have something called the Circle of Red, which is a group of human mages, possibly have sold themselves to some malicious worm entity who are hunting the werewolves. And then a werewolf, a guru that delivered 13 prophecies, and one of them seems to have come, no, so not 13, uh, <laughs> one for each of the tribes that is active during the uh, in Europe during the Dark Ages. Each tribe got a prophecy, and one of them turned out to be the fall of Constantinople, which has happened. But they never really managed, in my opinion, to make it really interesting, because it doesn't seem like there are any real stakes here. It is a time where... All of the things that the werewolves are fighting against are, are on the back foot. So for me, it's, it would always be difficult to come up with a good idea for anything other than a, a very short chronicle. But basically, like, yeah, the werewolves, they're trying to figure out how to reverse the playing plague. They're trying to take care of the circle of red that's after them. And they're trying to figure out what the, the prophecies mean. So they're not, they're not really that engaged in anything big. Uh, and as you make mention, 
the fall of Constantinople is is anticipated. You have the flame plague. Uh, so it sounds like they're mostly focused internally, that this is a time, the, the werewolf time of power politics or something where you're trying to, as you mentioned, fight over cairns and so on. You mentioned the Circle of Red, and I'm, currently I'm reading Devil's Do, and one of the things that comes <laughs> up there is the idea that the werewolves just don't understand demons. They're like, yeah, what? Yeah, for them it's, it's always something wormy. Yeah. It must always be of the worm. But the thing is, like, in the core book, they never really get into politics beyond they fight over cairns. Like, they, they attack each other, kill each other, take over each other's cairns. In my opinion, the most interesting book for Dark Ages Werewolf is actually Dark Ages British Isles. Because here, they really go into the political situation between the native Piana, the invading Penrir, and the Silverfangs that came along with the Romans. And here you have politics here it's not just we try to kill each other there are actual alliances also because you have the black spiral dancers up north so they realize that there is a common enemy so actually i would say if you want to run anything dark ages werewolf then you should not only get the core book you should also get dark ages british Isles because that that offers something more interesting that the core book offers so it, i'm a big fan of werewolf but i just think they somehow missed something in in making this which is kind of sad because it's a cool setting to run around as a werewolf in i mean this this medieval setting when when you can rip a person in in half no matter what armor they're wearing <laughs> Premium isn't exactly common, and nor do you need to deal with uh, a hunter that has access to silver rounds and a uh, semi-automatic firearm. So, <laughs> speaking of, so we we have this peasant class. Is there a artisan class? What exists kind of between the peasants and the nobles in terms of social power station? ability and wealth like to the best of my knowledge we didn't really have a merchant class we had things like the hanseatic league running around not in 1230 actually we wouldn't have the hanseatic league i thought that started no no, the hanseatic league starts in the year 1241 when an agreement is signed between the cities of lübeck and hamburg where they agree to align their laws and their coinage. And then the first mention of the word Hanse is, if I recall correctly, in the 1260s. And it's not really, I would say, the Hanseatic League gets its real start in 1275 when Magdeburg joins the League. So it it starts off as just a couple of cities on the North Sea and Baltic coast getting together. But then when Magdeburg joins, they really start getting powerful. But they don't really start to get the ball rolling until you hit the 14th century. And it's kind of interesting because I've made uh, that mistake, actually, in some of the, the stuff that I've written, where I also assumed that the Hanseatic League was older than it was. And then I started to really look into it. One of my favorite holiday destinations is the city of Lübeck, which was the queen of the Hanse. They have a lot of museums there. I started learning a lot about the Hanseatic League, and you can actually trace it back to the start being that very document that was signed in uh, in 1241. So, so you can just get the start in 1242, which is where the 20th anniversary edition of Dark Ages starts. I will correct myself and say the precursor cha- trade between the what eventually would become German city-states, along as you mentioned, the Baltic and the North Sea. So is there... Is there a craftsman, an artisan class? Is there an artist class? Is there a merchant class at this time in Europe to speak of? That depends on who you ask, because especially if you ask the nobles and the clergy, they will say there are three pillars. There are those who toil, the peasants. There are those who pray, the clergy. And there are those who fight, the nobles. If you then ask people in the cities, they will say, no, there are also workers, the citizens, people who live in the city. 
And the others will say, yeah, they're just peasants as well. They're just peasants who don't happen to farm. You're still working. So you don't have from the official standpoint of those in power any separation between a peasant who's working the field and a person who is living in a city. However, for all practical purposes, people who live in cities are a different class. And you have both those who do actual work in the form of physical labor, people who are craftsmen, and then you have people who are tradesmen. So, for example, an innkeeper is not a craftsman, but he is a tradesman. And then you have the merchants. And in 1230, you begin to see the emergence of what will become this incredibly wealthy merchant class. Because up until that point, merchants would often travel. For example, if we take a look at the precursor to the Hanseatic League, you had people from the Baltic cities joining together, traveling to Visby on the island of Gotland, where they would band together for, uh, for protection before they traveled to Novgorod, where these huge markets were, where you would get all of the stuff from Eastern Europe, things like beeswax and furs and all, all that sort of thing. But by 1230, you had the wealth and you had the infrastructure where the leaders of merchant families could stay at home and they would send out factors, they would send out their sons, and you started to get this centralized trade getting done. So the merchant class is really emerging at this point. You also have the emergence of the guilds. By 1230, tradesmen have joined together in guilds, and guilds have become incredibly powerful. Service guilds haven't quite started up yet. The, the various service uh, people, things like, for example, lawyers, are looking at guild options, but they haven't quite gotten organized yet. And merchants, they're still in merchant families and the idea of merchant guilds will emerge, though, only in places where you don't have things like the Hanseatic League. The Hanseatic League can be seen as sort of an uber guild, something even bigger and more powerful than guilds. For the peasants, there's layers, but they are only seen as peasants by others. And nobles, they're just nobles. Though once again, there are different tiers of nobles, but once you're, once you're a noble, you're a noble. And the same thing with the clergy. There are tiers of clergy, but once you're the, in the clergy, you are in the clergy. You make mention of the nobles being those who fight. Is this an era where generally warfare is mostly being done by nobles? What does armed conflict look like in this period, and why is it happening? So wars happen for a lot of the same reasons that they happen today, obviously, when we think the Middle Ages and warfare, the first thing that springs to mind for a lot of people will be the Crusades. They are an anomaly, mainly when you have warfare, you have warfare between wealthy people, usually nobles. Usually you will have some kind of either border conflict or you will have some sort of feud or going all the way up, you will have disagreements between the rulers of various nations. But you begin to see other kinds of conflicts, because you begin to see the rise of free cities in places like especially Germany and uh, Flanders. And like 60 years after this, I think it's in the 1290s or something like that, you have the Battle of the Golden Spurs, where the citizens of Flanders go to war against France, and they defeat an army mainly composed of French knights. And it's called the Battle of the Golden Spurs, because they say, they say that so much gold was made in ransom that you could make golden spurs for everyone who participated there. But mostly you're going to see nobles fighting against other nobles or in Italy, possibly city-states fighting against other city-states, which is almost the same thing. And it's nobles leading it. You have nobles are 
the knights, they're the ones who can afford the war horse, they can afford the heavy armor, but obviously much of the fighting was still at this point done by the levies, by peasant levies. But you're seeing more and more professional soldiers come in because nobles were realizing that peasant levies, not only are they not the best of soldiers because they don't have time to train that much, but if your peasants die fighting, they can't really work your land. And nobles were getting richer and richer. So at this point, you see the slow rise of the professional warriors, the mercenaries, especially the Italian, is it called Condicieri or something like that? I think it's, that's what they're called. Like there, it, There's a lot of Italian mercenaries at this point. And then you have a few internal crusades. You have things like the Albigensian Crusade. You have the start of the Baltic Crusades. Uh, you have the Teutonic Knights basically trying to create their own kingdom in the, the pagan East because they were kicked out of Hungary and they really want their own kingdom. People fight over things like religion, land, insults, all, all sorts of things. And what would a large battlefield engagement look like at this point? Like, what kind of, if there's a notable battle that happened around then, what did it look like? How many people were involved? Did we have artillery pieces? Was it like two people on a horse and 30,000 people carrying picks and hoes? Just kind of, if you can, paint, paint what a battlefield at this point would have looked like. Well, first and foremost, a battlefield will come, at us, come as a surprise to a lot of people because nobody really wanted a pitch battle at this point because if you're in a pitch battle, you can lose. doesn't matter how confident you feel, you can lose. So first and foremost, a lot of war was actually armies moving, maneuvering, trying to deny resources to the other army. But when you met, armies were traditionally divided into what was called battles. You had three battles, that's the root of the word battalion. If you had an actual pitched battle rather than one army surprising another, you would line up with the vanguard, which was the front battle on the left, and then the center in the center and the rear guard on the right flank. You would have first uh, an archery duel. The archers would be out in front. Whoever won that would be, I, I say archers, I should probably at this point say crossbowmen, unless you were on the British Isles, because bows were, were only really used on the British Isles, and that was because the Welsh had introduced the what would be called the English longbow or the war bow. On the continent, crossbows were the thing. But you had sort of had a duel between those with ranged weapons. Whoever won could then inflict damage on the other side's horsemen and footmen. You would then have the knights with their retinues. They could have lesser knights around them. If you were a duke, you would have a retinue of knights. If you were a simple baron, you might just have a few what was called sergeants. A sergeant at this point was a mounted warrior who was not a knight and was usually not as well equipped as a knight. And then you had your foot troops. Now, there's a tendency I've noticed in both computer games, fantasy novel, things like that, to have units of swordsmen and things like that, but you didn't have that. The primary weapon on the battlefield for most of human history has been the spear. And it's, it's a weapon that's been used by soldiers from antiquity until today because you know a rifle with a bayonet on it is a spear so you have people with spears and a lot of this would still at this point probably be peasant levy who would have spears and then whatever else they could afford or had inherited from their father and father before that and then you would have mercenaries if you could afford them and mercenaries tended to be better equipped usually a lot more piecemeal equipped because they would have whatever they could scrounge and afford, but usually also spears and shields and then with some kind of sidearm as backup. And then there would be 
you know, clash of cavalry, and whichever cavalry won could then harry the defenders. But usually pitched battles would be over fairly soon because one side would uh, would break. It wasn't until you started getting more disciplined armies, more uh, professional armies, standing armies. Now we're getting into the Renaissance. That's when pitched battles lasted for longer. It was rare for battles to go on for more than maybe an hour or two because before one side realized we're going to lose this or one side had a lot of peasants who thought, bugger this, I'm not dying for my lord and ran away. And during a rout, that's when the real dying began. Like in, in a pitch battle, that's actually where the fewest people died. What people died from was when you routed because then you would be ridden down and slaughtered and then obviously dying of your wounds and the big killer which is always the big killer in war, disease that killed so many more people during war than any other thing. Kind of working through that, pitch battle is one where you know where it's going to happen. Like there yeah. is a, a appropriate field of apple and it could be chosen or it could just be obvious. We are on opposite sides. <laughs> we know when this is going to happen. And as you mentioned, you have a retreat where you're like, going to go. And then you have a route, which is disorderly rank breaks. There is no organization. Groups can be cut off. So kind of two questions. One, were these knights that you make mention of, was that a full-time thing? Did they, were they a turd farmer the rest of the time or did they have (laughs) knightly duties the rest of the time? And when you make mention of a position in aerial denial, was that a case of just trying to interrupt supply lines and logistics or was it more just posturing to say, there's more of us, there's no reason to fight. Knights were nobles. If you were a male noble, then you were, per definition, a knight. You didn't always perform your knightly duties. Sometimes you would pay scootage or shield tax, where you just paid whoever was higher in rank than you when they called you to battle. But the idea was that, this is an off-site statistics, a knight fully equipped, that is a knight on a war horse with all the weapons and armor needed, the price for that was the entire income of a prosperous village for a year. You could only be a knight if you were very, very rich. Now, if you go something like, say, 100 years into the future, you would have people that were as well equipped as knights were who were fighting for free cities. These were very wealthy citizens, usually high-ranking craftsmen or merchants, who were actually able to buy the same level of equipment. But in 1230, knights were nobles. The closest thing you could get to a non-noble knight would be the sergeants, which were mounted warriors. Oftentimes, these came from wealthy families that served nobles. And if you were, say, the fifth son of the guy who who maintained one of the uh, walls, then you might be asked, okay, would you like to be a sergeant? And that could be a full-time job. The knightly orders, the people like the hospitallers and the templars, they also employed sergeants as assistant troops. But yeah, if, if you were a knight at this point, you were a nobleman because they were the only ones who had the means to equip themselves as a knight should, uh, should be. Now, as for the whole area denial thing, that was basically the way to win because if you could rampage through someone's area, you not, could not only get supplies for yourself, but you could deny the enemy supplies. For example, during the, uh, we're going back a couple of hundred years here, but I've recently done some, some research on this. So, so that's why it's fresh in my mind. But during the Viking invasion of England, the, this huge heathen army 
that moved around England, taking whatever they could carry and then burning crops and killing livestock because that then denied the other side their resources. Because most of the time, it didn't end in a battle, a war. It ended in sieges. You would take strategic cities instead of, of defeating the, the army. And if you took enough cities and you ruined enough land, then the enemy would come to the negotiation table and just say, okay, it's quite clear that, that you know, we can't keep you from doing this, so let's, let's find a peace. So it's, it's interesting that in our minds, there are a lot of these great battles in the Middle Ages, but most of the time you just had two armies running around the countryside, often trying to avoid each other. Most of the pitched battles you got were in the Crusades or when someone had taken up a vital defensive position where the other army just realized they had to shift them from that position. Otherwise, what you mainly got was sieges lasting sometimes up to several years. And that's kind of interesting because in a mage game, that breaking a siege or convincing a few people or doing behind enemy line stuff seems like something that a fellowship could very much do using a completely different toolbox than someone who is being more explicitly martial that your member of the old faith that has the ability to suddenly cause a field to become fallow is going to be much more influential than someone who is able to summon down Pyrrhos necessarily and use Formus to create great elemental damage. It's also kind of interesting that like a lot of the things that were commonplace are now by definition war crimes that if you were yeah. to just start destroying peasants and fields and everything, just about every country is like, no, that's the one thing you don't do. So <laughs> yeah. it's kind of interesting that there's this, that there's this curvature to it. When you make mention of city states having the money to have a, a knight or what have you, or have someone of similar thing, is that because they have gotten so wealthy or is that also because we have gotten better at producing the tools of war? Warfare. Is this a sign of wealth or is this kind of technological advance that it's way easier for us to make plate armor? It's, uh, it's a little bit of both because by this time you are starting to see the emergence of what's called free cities. Now, free cities are not cities that are 100% free. They are, they are cities that are only beholden to the highest ruler. So a free city in the Holy Roman Empire would be beholden only to the emperor. What that means is they pay taxes to the emperor, either a percentage or a flat fee. And then they're allowed to govern themselves. And they would usually do this through a city senate, what we would call a city council today, which elected a burgomeister, a, a mayor. And it, it wasn't like anyone could stand for election to the city senate. That was reserved for the wealthiest. But it was still a level of democracy. And then the idea was that if you lived in a free city, if you were a citizen, and that didn't just mean you lived in the city, that meant that your name was written on the role of citizens every city had a role where they wrote down who were actually a citizen. If you were a male citizen, then you had an obligation to defend the city. And when you get into later dates where these city-states, places like Lübeck, like Hamburg, like the cities of Flanders and things like that, became incredibly wealthy, like far wealthier than any noble. Yeah, they could equip their people or the people who lived in the city could equip themselves with the most expensive weapons and armor, should it be needed. And that meant that the cities became even freer because now nobody could come with military might and actually impose anything upon them. So you see the, the start of this more modern idea that people had more rights. That comes from the city, uh, the free cities and, and the Italian city-states. 
being able to defend themselves against the nobles, the nobles realizing that they had to give some kind of um, concessions to the cities because the cities had become so rich and powerful that they could defend themselves. What kind of brought that wealth on? Centralization. Okay. Once again, we come back to the fall of the Western Roman Empire, completely and utterly destroyed centralization in Western Europe. Then we see slowly rebuilding and then more and more and more international trade, more and more centralization. You see coinage being aligned. You see laws being aligned. As soon as more and more cities and more and more places make coins that are the same weight or has the same mark on them, as soon as so many places recognize the same laws, things become easier. You also see, of course, advances in shipbuilding. You see things like more canals being dug on rivers and river locks being developed. So as soon as you have more wealth coming in from trade, you have more wealth to spend on improving the infrastructure that allows more wealth to come in. And you have more and more contact with other places. You have more and more contact with places like the Maghreb in North Africa. You have contact with the Arabian Peninsula which sees luxury goods coming in and sees things like especially European cloth going out. But it's all about centralizing power, centralizing influence, and building up an infrastructure. And this is really starting to kick off at this point. You really begin to see things moving at a much greater volume than it ever has before. And it's kind of interesting because we think frequently of technologies in terms of things like metallurgy, the yoke, the longbow, but administration is a technology unto itself. The idea that a group of cities could harmonize and we're going to go, we're all going to use the same weight of coin. It may be struck with a different face on it, but at the end of the day, they're all a quarter of a troy ounce or something like that, or nine wheat grain in mass or something like that. And also we are going to allow anyone to use our roads at this price, or we are going to make sure that the canals are always at least this wide. So this type of ship can get through that coordination is kind of a technology unto itself. So I can certainly predict, I can see almost a precursor group to the syndicate going through Europe and trying to jumpstart the Hanseatic League, as we mentioned. And now you're just going from city to city to city. And it's just this constant set of almost comedy of matters as you find out that each of these different places does things differently. How do I convince them that if they just do this one weird little thing differently, we're going to get them to be able to move 20% more linen every year, or their wheat export is going to be much more valuable in any given period of time. You mentioned the role of citizens. So my game is one of my characters is, as you mentioned, the Meisterburger of a, or Burgermeister, I can't remember which. Burgermeister. Okay. Of a town somewhere. And I have the rest of my covenant who kind of helps me keep this place to be a bastion for whatever reason. Maybe we have a connection to the Umbra or we are working to get mythical creatures out of Europe at the time. What are just some of the challenges that a burgeoning city is going to face in this era, either mundane or supernatural? So supernatural, obviously the predation of vampires. Like If you have a burgeoning city, you are going to see vampires swarming towards that because that is a resource that is going to be exploitable. You may have werewolves who don't like the idea of a new city. As for mages, that really depends on what fellowship is around because some of them might really like for a city to grow and some of them might really not. As for mortal concerns, the interesting thing is at this point, 
there aren't really that many. The biggest problem is going to be if it wants to be a free city, they're going to have to find a way to get out from under whatever either secular or church nobleman has the area because a lot of towns and cities were not under any any secular ruler but were actually under a either a monastery or archbishop but you see cities being founded by people like the holy roman emperor or the king of england or the king of france as free cities if it's founded as a free city then all you have to worry about is getting enough people because you have to have people come into the city because most of your citizens are going to die off from disease. So if you have a, a good means of fighting disease, like if you have some wizards staying there who have a way of limiting disease, then all of a sudden you have a, a good way of growing. But people move to cities like they've done almost throughout history when cities became a thing. People move from the country to the city looking for opportunities. So there aren't really that many pitfalls unless you step on the toes of someone really powerful, which could be, for example, if you are an emerging city somewhere and you manage to piss off the Hanseatic League, they could do some really hardcore things. Like at, at more than one point, they actually boycotted or embargoed Flanders and managed to close off the Danish Straits to any kind of grain transport to the Low Countries and forced the leaders of the cities in the Low Countries to come to the negotiation table. So really, as, as long as you keep your head down, it's more likely that you're going to grow than not because this is a time of rapid expansion in Europe. And you kind of make mention to that. What are, in this period of the 1230s, some of those interesting either people or organizations or threats to you? One of the things that we got in Sorcerer's Crusade that we didn't get in Dark Ages is just kind of personalities. We don't get any information of who the, the kings or monarchs are, or even so much as who the current pope is. When you think of kind of the early 1200s, are there any particularly interesting people or places that come to mind to you that you think, hey, this would be an interesting person to have in your game, or this would be an interesting place to uh, to run a game? So. The first thing that pops into my mind is, in lo is the Low Countries, Flanders, which is at this point, I think, the Duchy of Flanders, but it changes quite a bit. This is, I was listening to a university course on European history, and one thing was mentioned that just stuck in my mind, and that is Flanders was the first industrialized area of Europe. And I looked into it, and yeah, the cities of Flanders at this point, they're industrial cities. They're engaged in only one industry, and that's making cloth. Like 90% of the British Isles wool export goes to the low countries and gets turned into cloth down there. This is a really interesting place. You have several cities that are up to 40,000 inhabitants, which is crazy north of the Alps. That's an insane size. And having that many cities in one area is just, it makes it such an interesting area to explore. It is in my mind, a great place to set a vampire chronicle because you have these big cities where you can have a sizable population of vampires. As for interesting people, I will always go back to Emperor Friedrich II Hohenstaufen, who he's a bit later than 1230, but I think he's just such an interesting person. He went on the Fifth Crusade, but got sick and had to turn back. And so the Pope excommunicated him because he promised to go on crusade. And he said, and he said, you know, seriously, I, I got sick. I had to go back. And the Pope was still excommunicating him. So he went on the Sixth Crusade 
he went to the Holy Land, and rather than, he, than fight, this was the only crusade where there was no fighting, because he spoke Arabic, he understood the politics of the various groupings in the area, so rather than fighting, he just negotiated, and he, quote-unquote, won Jerusalem without a fight, just through his negotiation with the Muslim rulers, and speaking Arabic, and actually having studied Islam, but he did it while he was excommunicated. So he had to flee the Holy Land through the city of Akha while people were pelting him with garbage because he was excommunicated. Never mind that he got Jerusalem back to them. So I think he's just an incredibly fascinating person. A bit earlier, you have someone like Kildegard von Bingen, who was one of the biggest names in the church and not just one of the biggest female names in the church, but she was just a, an incredible person within the church and someone that you could definitely see being involved in a mage game on the Messianic Voices side. Like, if, if there's anyone who would be a good template for a Messianic voice, I think Hildegard von Bingen would be one of them. You mentioned the Low Countries. For those of us uh, not in Europe or familiar with it, I think of kind of the Benelux countries yeah. as being the low like literally it is low it is not a social claim it is the fact that you have this massive area that is approximately four centimeters above <laughs> sea level from my understanding of things yes yeah. yeah exactly yeah. it is flanders is most of it today is southern belgium a tiny bit of it is northern france and yes it was called the low countries because as you said it, it's one of the few places in europe that's flatter than where i live so yeah and that area, whole area, just exploded at this at this time and just became a real powerhouse, economically speaking. Yeah, God made the world and the Dutch made Holland. So um, <laughs> very much. <laughs> so it is a, a large flat area. The Great European Plain is certainly a phenomenon, and that's part of the reason why the Mongols are like, this seems like a good place to invade. <laughs> we don't have to deal with mountains. So that's kind of cool. So okay, we have these clusters of activity. What are some areas of Europe at this time that are not nearly as built up or civilized as we may think they are? Like maybe we think of, for instance, Lyon, France is like the sixth largest city in the European Union or something, or London as being this massive metropolis. But in the year 1230, it was basically a saloon, uh, a horse place, and a church or something like that. What are the areas that are kind of really empty that are just kind of a canvas if you want to have that Valderman spirit talker, old faith game? Scandinavia, where, where I'm from, there's a tendency, tendency, I think, to either paint this as, ah, it's just more of Germany, or, ooh, this is the last holdout of, of the Vikings, and neither is actually true. Denmark was starting to become a bigger civilization, or whatever you want to call it at this point. But still, the biggest city in Denmark at this point, if you include the transient population, would probably have about 1,000 1, people living in it, which is nothing compared to the bigger cities, though the bigger cities tend to be not as big as people think. Like I mentioned, a city between ten and 40,000 was like the major metropolis of an area usually. And the further north you go, the less civilized, more sparsely populated areas become, and the greater the tendency to Christianity not having penetrated. Also going east, like I mentioned, Nizhny Novgorod, Novgorod, the city, is sort of the, the center of civilization in a vast expanse of, of relative emptiness. Then you, uh, you can go into North Africa, 
And basically, if you're moving between the big cities in North Africa, you also have some relatively relatively sparse areas, but you still had civilization creeping in all over the place. So you basically have to look at areas usually where either Christianity or Islam hasn't arrived just yet because they were big unifying factors that brought with it for good or and bad all the baggage from the areas that they came through. So it had a civilizationing effect, which was usually not very good for whatever locals were unwilling to convert. So it's, it's places like, say, the Baltic countries. Prussia is in the middle of a war with the Teutonic Order at this point and is not really that well-developed either. And then head north up into Scandinavia, and you're also going to find some, some lands where you may have one or two cities dotted about places like, uh, for example, Uppsala. But most of it is going to be just like forests and peasants who may have heard of Jesus, but is not quite sure how he relates to Thor. And I, I think we may have talked about this on our previous conversation, but the largest city in Europe in 1200 is Palermo at 150,000. Paris has barely broken 100,000. London is at 25,000. Toledo and Cordova and Grenada are unusually large. It's it's pretty clear that the further south you go, just kind of uh, the more people you are going to see. Anything north of the Alps, if it breaks 10,000, it's incredible. If you go south of the Alps, then you can quickly find a city of 10,000. And this, to me, kind of creates an interesting game because there's just not enough people for there to be a huge number of mages. And at the same time, there's not enough people to have a huge number of vampires. So <laughs> this could be the case where it's your fellowship of three against the largest group of vampires in Grenada or Cologne, and there are four. So it, it's, it's a very intimate Europe kind of for lack of a better thing. And and to me, one of the things these kind of games can really excel at is kind of that feeling of loneliness that we are soul practitioners. We are one of the only people to support our faith. Yes, we may have this great power center somewhere, but chances are, unless you spend a lot of time with that, you're only going to run into a handful of mages that do something similar to you in your own lifetime. And you both have this, your ideas are different and weird from mine, but also you're the only thing I've run into that's anything like me. And that's kind of a recurring theme in Vampire. We are solitary predators but if we don't spend time with other people of our kind, we're going to go batshit or we're going to go batshit anyway. So I think that is kind of a hidden theme in these games, unless you're going to make mages uh, super common. It's just how few people there are for any of the stuff to kind of happen. It's something that we run in, into all the time when we're looking at the Dark Ages vampire books, because they've established more than once that back in this time, the ratio was one vampire to a thousand mortals. And that's going to work out fine for cities like, say, Paris or Palermo or something like that. But like I mentioned, in Denmark, you could have one vampire in the biggest city, and that's it. So it's, it's kind of weird when you then get these descriptions of, oh, and here we have this city with this court, and you're thinking, yeah, what's the court made out of? Like the prince and his child, and that's it, because the city's not going to be big enough to actually support that amount of vampires. It's easier with the with the other types 
because they've never specified exactly what the ratio is. But like you said, with the exception of something like werewolf, where they thrive, where there's no vampires, and the fae who are something completely different, it's going to be fairly spread out unless you specifically go for some kind of civilization center. We've talked about the world in the 1230s, kind of what what warfare would look like. How does fighting and the nature of battle kind of evolve over the next century or two? Like, so in Mage, we have information about the world in 1230, which you've helped us outline in, in our two episodes. And then we have the Sorcerer's Crusade setting, which actually did a pretty good job of saying, this is what the world looked like. This is how a town worked. This is how a village worked. What kind of key things happen between the 1230s, between the early 13th century and I guess the middle 15th century, kind of what ideas are maybe on the horizon that mages can kind of dabble in and either be on the vanguard or heretics for doing? So three things. One, you see prices going down. In 1230, you have to be a rich knight to afford a full suit of mail. In the middle of the 15th century, If you're a soldier, you will own a suit of mail unless you are an archer or crossbowman, then you might not. But the price has gone down. The same thing with just like everything, swords, shields, helmets, everything. The price goes down. At the same time, you do see advancements. So in the middle of the 15th century, the knight that wore a full set of mail armor in 1230 is going to be wearing a full set of plate armor, which your average soldier is not going to be able to afford. But with the rise of plates and with other armors, metal armors becoming cheaper, you also see a change in weaponry because you're not going to be able to get through this new armor with the weapons that you had. So you see the rise of pole arms. Once again, they're just advanced spears in most cases. Spears still going to be the primary weapon of war, but you see the idea of trying to get through armor change because now you are going to need a heavier weapon with more leverage, a longer pole. So you have that change. You have the English introducing the war bow to the continent and it being taken up not just by the English, but by a few other nations. And there's sort of a duel going on between the English war bow and the Italian crossbow, which then slowly gets phased out when personal firearms become more prevalent. And then you see the beginning of the standing armies. Mercenaries more or less take over in the 15th century. You're not going to see that many levies on the battlefield because it's just not worth it. You're going to pay mercenaries to fight alongside the knights. You won't, unless magic is involved, start seeing battlefield artillery. Like battlefield artillery went away with the Romans. And it's not really going to come back just yet unless magic is involved. Artillery, especially gunpowder artillery, is going to be used in in sieges, but it's just not mobile enough for the battlefield yet. Once you start getting cannons that can be transported, once you start getting into especially the Thirty Years' War and the time leading up to the Thirty Years' War, that's where you start to see mobile artillery. Before then, then artillery on the battlefield is going to be involved in in sieges. So the three main things are stuff becomes cheaper. You may start seeing heavier armor. And in order to defeat the heavier armor, you start seeing 
pole arms and on the battlefield you're no longer really going to see that much in the way of levies it's going to be either national standing armies which become sort of a thing in the 15th century or it's going to be mercenaries and somewhere between these two there's a bunch of things that develop that we kind of take for granted liquor as we know it isn't very Ah. common in this period of time magnets are kind of recently being done proper glass mirrors are still very new the quarantine hasn't been invented yet arabic numerals were not Mm. wine spread we didn't have functional buttons (laughs) we didn't have pockets yes you just you just kind of had very large cloth that wrapped around you and the moment people are like you know what if we cut a hole in this and then you cut a hole in the hole and then you put a thing through the hole, then you don't need 75 yards of cloth to go out (laughs) in winter. And that immediately tripled people's productivity. Now, the person who came with the button was probably burned as a heretic. It's like, ah, it's the devil's pin or something like that. Again, they're all turd farmers. Uh, Paper is not yet common at this point. Forks. The fork hasn't been invented yet. The astronomical compass is yet to be done. Compasses generally in this period of time are still wet compasses where you're floating something as opposed to what is now referred to as the dry compass. The compound crank hasn't been invented yet. The stationary crane. We don't have mechanical clocks. We don't have the hourglass. We don't have ships that can actually sail that far. It's not until like in, in the middle of the 15th century that you see the Portuguese invent ships that are actually capable of sailing south of the Sahara Desert, which then kicks off the uh, European slave trade. So not the, the best use of that invention, but uh, but yeah, it's it's interesting when, when you look at things like, for example, ships, they are coastal hawkers at this point. Yeah. And sometime between the two eras, we get the idea of combined arms tactics, that Mm. this is how you have archers working with heavy infantry, working with your spear folk. And I do like the idea of the technocracy, even in the modern era, having like the advanced spear research division, (laughs) and they just kind of view everything as some sort of spear. Nuclear weapons is just a very potent kind of spear or something like that, kind of continuing that, that tradition that at the end of the day, the pointy object going through the bad guy is the most effective way to end fighting. Do you have a kind of between the two? Is, are there any historical gems or bits that you find most fascinating little points or, or fulcrums in history that occur between kind of that 13th and that 15th century? There's the fall of the, of the Crusader States, which is actually a rather interesting series of events, which not so much neat, but it really ends a chapter in history. It ends European involvement in this part of the world for hundreds of years. So I think that's uh, that's an interesting thing. The Hanseatic League, like I have dedicated an entire episode of our podcast. We sometimes do what we call side quests, which are episodes where we don't look at books, but do other things. I dedicated an entire episode to the Hanseatic League just because I find it so fascinating where I go into the entire history of the League and what happened with it. You have the rise of the Italian city-states and and really their incredible innovations in trade things, things like double-ledger bookkeeping, which is one of the things that allowed them to sort of outmaneuver the Hanseatic League. At one point, the Hanseatic League had rules against dealing with Italians, but those rules were never followed because they had to do it from the point of view of someone who is absolutely crazy about weapons and fighting. The involvement of the longsword and the fencing manuals you have 
books from this period. Basically, they are martial arts instruction manuals in fencing, mainly longsword fencing. Later, it becomes mainly rapier fencing, but various other weapons as well. But you see the rise of a very formal, very studied way of fighting, which I think is rather interesting and also shows that people had enough time on their hands to dedicate to the study of fighting, not in warfare. If you went on the battlefield and tried your longsword techniques, you were dead. This was for recreational purposes, for judicial duels, and for self-defense. And I think that's interesting. And one thing that I really find interesting, and that this is a very, very important note for, uh, I think, to get on the table for certain people, we have evidence that uh, women in cities at this time, uh, at the beginning of the 14th century, trained sword fighting, which I just find so great. You can rub it in people's faces. No, women fought as well. Yeah, they, we had the last of the Crusader states would have been like what the Kingdom of Jerusalem falling in or or dissolving in the late uh, 1200s. Yeah, Acre Falls in 1291. It's overrun, and that's the end of the Crusader states. Basically, that that was the last holdout. That was that was Acre. Yeah, I remember that reading through. They made reference to the Altarimer, and I'm just like, what the dink? And that kind of led me down a a hole, a French for overseas from yeah. Outremer. Um, yeah. or what have you. Thank you again, Jacob, for your time and your kind of uh, tour through this period. Are there any other projects that you've done or any uh, other resources you might want to uh, point listeners to? I have some stuff on the Storyteller's Vault. Uh, for those who don't, you, you don't know, it's a third-party platform for various stuff. Uh, there, I do have a mage book there. And I'm actually, as we're speaking, I'm having another Dark Ages made mage book being edited. Hopefully in not that many weeks, I, I will have another Dark Ages mage book going up on the Storyteller's Vault. I have a bunch of, of Dark Ages stuff there because I absolutely, absolutely love the, the setting. If you want to see my take on some of these things, then pop by the, the Storyteller's Vault. Maybe I'll make a few uh, bucks off that. <laughs> and you also worked on one of the most fascinating of accidental mage supplements of The Red Sign. Oh yeah, that one. That's an interesting book. <laughs> oh, it's fascinating because like it very much had the feeling to me of like uh, Brian Campbell and, and Conrad Hubbard had worked on a few different mage publications, but you could kind of see the vampire sensibilities creeping in where it's just like, nope, we're going to, we're going to shove events and characters and places into this. Screw your philosophy, yep. nerd. <laughs> we're <laughs> we're going to outline the six ages of the uh, technocracy cold war, which was previously never mentioned, but is suddenly a thing and fully illuminated so uh so, so thank you on working for that yeah I, I i stayed in my lane there i take no responsibility for any technology stuff i was i was mainly interested in in having fun with with various vampiric cons conspirators and stuff like that yeah I, I mean it's 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 one of those things where nothing in there is ever mentioned again so it's real easy to <laughs> add it or ignore it as as one would like but again uh jacob thank you so much for your time and for your work well, thank you so much for uh, for having me, and uh, I hope that people found this uh, this interesting. And once again, for those of you out there listening, if you want to learn more about the 13th century through the eyes of the books, then then come by our podcast. We can always use more listeners. Thank you so much. This has been made to the podcast where in our Dark Ages game, the Hanseatic League is totally a thing in the 1230s thanks to a time-traveling syndicate member. This episode is made possible by Sean Gallagher, Oracle of the Bark Ages, a time ruled by dogs. Benjamin Bendelow, Oracle of the Spark Ages, an alternative term for the Industrial Revolution. Buck Gregory, Oracle of the Stark Ages, when black and white clothing was all the rage. 
Christopher Phillips, Oracle of the Park Ages, where we all just gave up on our cars at once. Guy Stewart, Oracle of the Mark Ages, which is a friendly term for the era of rulership of Marcus Aurelius. Josh Hillerup, Oracle of the Shark Ages, because who doesn't like sharks? Pukuji, Oracle of the Hark Ages, where we just kind of shouted more exclamations than we do now. Jay Widener, Oracle of the Narc Ages, which was the worst time in, to try and get away with smoking in the bathroom in a middle school. Mikhail, Oracle of the Ark Ages, you know, what for the flood and all. And the crew of Erebus, Oracle of the Quark Ages, when fresh farm cheese was available and abundant. Additionally, thanks to Archmaster Andrew Andersen, Archmaster Brad the Blue, Archmaster Bubba the Pale One, Archmaster Dan Svensson, Archmaster Derek Semsek, Archmaster Jason Vines, Archmaster Morgan Aron, Archmaster Nathan Weaver, as well as Alex, Alexia, Anders S, Anon, Baderfi, Birdo, Blaze Hibbert, Blake Ryan, Brandon, Bryce Perry, Chris Blake, Sin Chodas, Daniel Cuppin, Daniel Scribner, Darren Hennessy, David Roy, Dennis Osborne, Eli Levenger, Eric Schwenk, Fraggerock, George Laura, Henry Kraft, Eable, Jason Kennedy, Jason W. Briggs, Jay Gatsby, Jeff Brin, John Magnuson, Jolene Andes, Lulz and Stuff, Joshua Heath, Kathleen Halperin, Chris Kinner, Leroy Bryce, Leslie Weatherstone, Matthew Proyle, Michael Creedle, Michael Parker, Nathan Weaver, Nibero, Neil Patterson, Nikita Klamanov, Oliver Schindler, Patrick Mulder, Patrick McNamara, Rachel Grace, Richard Bat Brewster, Robart the Robot, Ryan Stray, Rob H., Ryan Kendi, Samuel Tobin, Schnobelta Krieger, Starfish, Stefan Carton, Thrice Great, Vincent Hamilton, Walter, William Connolly, William Martin, and Zach Rules. Our EP shout-out this week is to Fraggle Rock, which I thought was just a weird way of, like, spelling Fraggle Rock, the children's TV show, but p- apparently it's it's a thing. In Irish mythology, Fraggle Rock, known as the Whisperer, the Answerer, or the Retaliator, was the Sword of Nuada, the first High King. The sword was forged by the gods and was meant to be wielded only by those who posed above the Stone of Destiny, which roared and the sword whispered in response. Nuada lost his arm in the first battle of Macturid. Being mutilated was no longer suitable to be High King. So for the second battle of Macturid, Nuada chose Luke as provisional king, using a spear and a sling given to him by Manak Makalir. Luke defeated the Fomorians and their king, Balor. During the battle, Nuada gave Luke the sword as a symbol of the king. It was said that when Fragorok was at someone's throat, no one could move or tell a lie, thus the name Answerer. The sword was also said to place the wind at the user's command and could cut through any shield or wall, and it inflicted piercing wounds from which no man could recover. In my book, it sounds like it's causing ag damage. Thank you for your support. Rather listen on YouTube, search Mage the Podcast on YouTube to find our full library there. If you super like this episode or super didn't, drop us a line at magethepodcast at gmail.com or at magethepodcast on Twitter. We have a hop in Discord community at discord.me slash magethepodcast. We're also on Mastodon at dice.camp slash at magethepodcast. If you like us, please give us a review on the platform of your choosing or tell a friend about us. Also go to magethepodcast.com for show notes and all of our previous shows. Now go change reality. Bye.